Welcome to Valley Church. Glad you guys are here tonight. If we haven't met, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. We are going to continue in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, We have arrived at chapter 19, so you can open your Bibles there. Um, This chapter marks the beginning of a, a change in scene, a new topic. We are moving on to a new section of the story. So if you forgot all of Matthew up until this point, that's okay. It's a new, it's a new day. Um, chapter 19, open up there. This passage begins with a classic scenario where the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus and get him in trouble. Jesus is gaining popularity. They don't like it. They don't like Jesus. And so they ask him a very loaded, complicated question, hoping that he will make someone mad by how he answers. And so let's read Chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. You guys ready for this one? Cool. Um, Like today in the church, the issue of divorce was complicated for the people of God uh, back then. Like today, there was a more conservative group with a conservative take on divorce and a more progressive group with a more progressive take on it. I'm pretty sure that 100% of the people in here have dealt with divorce in some way. Uh, Maybe you are divorced. Maybe you are remarried. Maybe your parents were divorced. Someone really close to you got divorced, uh, a friend or a family member. You have at one point, maybe even now, thought about divorce. This is not a topic that requires me to use my imagination on how to get you guys interested and invested because uh, it is immediately relevant to us. The question is, what exactly is Jesus saying about marriage and divorce and how should that color how we think about it today as Valley Church? Before I begin, it's possible that I might say something today that will bother you. Maybe you'll think that I um, have said too much or not enough. Maybe that I come on too strong or not strong enough. It will hopefully cause you to think about your own life, your own story, your marriage, if you're married, the marriages you know of, your future, if you think about and want to get married. 
Um, and the first thing I want to say truly is that it is okay if we disagree. I'm really comfortable with that. If I say something and you're like, I don't know that I agree with that. That is really okay with me. I hope it's okay with you. Um, if I read and interpret and try to make sense of scripture and you're not sure that you agree with where I land, we can still be friends. We can worship together immediately after we put the Bible away and that's a good thing. Um, if I say something and you find that you have a, like a really strong reaction against it, I don't know that I'm gonna say something that's like this inflammatory, but just in case, if you have a really strong reaction where it makes you really upset or mad or sad, I hope that you'd be willing to talk to me about it rather than have it cause this reaction and then you just like shut off and you hate me forever or just leave and don't talk about it. Um, I hope that you'd be willing to um, come up to me and even just do one of these where you're like, hey, here's what I heard you say. Is that, is that what you actually meant? And then I have the opportunity to be like, ooh, nope, that's not what I meant. Sorry, it came across that way. Or yeah, that is what I meant to say. Let's talk about that. Um, anyways, I, I would appreciate that if you have questions or if something I say bothers you, we could talk about it. Whatever you want, Kevin. <laughs> coffee or lunch. He does, yeah. <laughs> we just had a conversation about how much it disarms me when Kevin does that, so. <laughs> I haven't like asked him to do it. We don't like stage it, but I'm ready for it and I like it, so <laughs> just. With all that said, we're gonna dig in. We'll start at verses one through three. Jesus finished saying these things, he left Galilee went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him. He healed them there. That's our like cut and scene. We're at a new location, new, new section of the story. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? The first thing, we have seen this a very similar scenario before in Matthew. The Pharisees are not trying to learn from Jesus. They're not asking a question with the, the genuine desire to learn from what Jesus thinks. They're hoping that Jesus will somehow be trapped and answer the question wrong or in a way that makes some people upset. Not unlike a modern scenario where like if, a, if you were with like a group of people in a dinner party, a person might feel trapped if, if they asked you like about the effectiveness of masks and COVID or like how safe are vaccines? You're like, whoa, why are we talking about this together? This is kind of weird. I think it's that like loaded of a deal for them, a loaded question for Jesus. There's lots of information, lots of strong opinions, a bit of a minefield to talk about with people. Divorce was that and maybe still is, um, but definitely was at this time for Jesus. The wording that the Pharisees use in their question when they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? This refers to both a passage in Deuteronomy and also to some modern, to them, rabbinic interpretations and understandings of what that passage in Deuteronomy means. So there are a few major interpretations of this passage that gave Israelite men permission to divorce their wives. We'll look at the scripture in a second, but the first thing I wanna say, the existence of this law in Israel's Torah and their law code is not God's endorsement of divorce. That is probably one of the most helpful and like fundamental things, especially for reading the Old Testament, is when we read that something existed in Israel's story in the Old Testament, whether it's what a person does or something in Israel's law code, it does not always like a one-to-one -one equivalent translate to God putting his stamp of approval on this thing. It exists in their code, but it is not God's endorsement. Um, 
we'll see in a second that it's a concession to these men in Israel who had really hard hearts. Second thing, this law was, and there are a few others as well, I think they were a mercy from God to women in a patriarchal society. Um, women did not have the legal ability to divorce their husbands. It was only the husband's legal right to do so. Additionally, if a woman was sent out of her house by her husband, it made for a horrible and likely unsafe life for the woman if she was unable to find work or someone else to take her in. So this law required a man to give his wife an official certificate of divorce so that she could rightfully remarry another man. If a husband kicked his wife out of their house, didn't officially divorce her, then she was found to be with someone else, she could be in a lot of trouble. So this law, not endorsing divorce as an okay thing, it was an attempt, I think, in part, to make a terrible thing less damaging to a woman in Israel. So let's look at Deuteronomy 24.1. We're reading like half of the verse just so we have the reference for what the Pharisees are referring to. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. That's the verse that they're referring to. That is half of a sentence. You can go read the second half of it if you'd like to. But this is what they are referring to, the Pharisees and their question. Over time, different rabbis developed different understandings of what this passage means. They debated about the meaning of the phrase, she becomes displeasing to him because she finds, he finds something indecent. Something indecent about her is the phrase in question. What does that mean? What constitutes as something indecent? One school of thought was that something indecent basically only meant adultery, some type of sexual unfaithfulness in the marriage. This was the only reason, they said, that a husband could divorce his wife. Another group followed the teaching of another rabbi who thought that something indecent could literally mean anything, displeases you in any way. She could not be attractive to you anymore. She could mess up your dinner. These are like actual examples that are cited in these old writings. Uh, and this would be counted as something indecent and in that school of thought grounds for divorce. They thought a man could divorce his wife, like the Pharisees said, for any and every reason. So the Pharisees have that whole backstory in their mind and they're like, ooh, this is gonna get him for sure. And they ask him this question so that he, they might trap him. Hotly debated topic. They're hoping that he'll make some people mad, but he does not take the bait. He goes even deeper than their question and it's wonderful. Verses four through six. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female, he's quoting Genesis one there, and said, quoting Genesis two, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, in light of what he just quoted and brought them back to Genesis, he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So rather than simply answering their question, no, you can't get divorced for any and every reason, or yes, any and every reason is fine, Jesus takes them back to the beginning, to a reminder about what marriage is. Takes them to the first page of the Bible, the first two chapters, Genesis one and two, tells us, tells them, God's intention for marriage is that it be one man who leaves his family of origin and one woman who leaves her family of origin they join together, join together to become one new family unit, and they are joined together by God, Jesus says. This is a God-ordained, orchestrated covenant that he puts together. 
This concept of becoming one refers to two things. One, the sexual union of sexually different humans, a male and a female, um, and that union is the repeated symbolic consummating act that signifies or reminds about the reality of the fact that a husband and wife are one. Um, though they are kind of in different categories of importance, it's, not, it, it's pretty similar to communion. Um, communion is the repeated symbolic act that reminds the church, reminds us about our identity in Jesus and our joining God's family. In a similar way, sex is like that. It is the repeated symbolic consummating act that solidifies and reminds a husband and wife that they are one, one flesh. The second thing that oneness refers to is that two family units become one new one. They're no longer two separate family lines. They become a new family, a new unit, a new oneness. So this is the marriage covenant where God himself binds a man and a woman together for life. And then Jesus says, what God has joined together, this is something God has done, what God joins together should not be separated. That is Jesus' answer up to this point. But he hasn't exactly answered their question of any and every reason. He just says, don't break what God puts together. But this is exactly what was happening. People were separating. They were tearing apart the oneness that God had joined together. And what they were doing was debating about when it was okay to do so. They wanted to know where on their theological grid of right and wrong that, that Jesus landed. And Jesus basically says, your grid is wrong because this is not supposed to happen. This is not the way that God uh, designed marriage. Bible scholar Leon Morris says, the typical attitude of the people of his day had reduced a God-given unity to a casual union dissolvable at the whim of the male. This was not what scripture meant when it spoke of what God did at the creation. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Pharisees now have kind of twisted the words and the idea of the law and they're trying again to question Jesus and trap him. Moses essentially said, if and when you send your wife away, give her a certificate of divorce so that she is not destitute. Moses didn't command that divorce happen if a husband was displeased with his wife. So they're essentially asking, why, why can't we tear apart what God has joined together if Moses has given us this provision in the law? Jesus says that Moses, the only reason that this law exists, that Moses gave the law to Israel was because these men in Israel had hard hearts that were set on divorce and they were divorcing their wives anyways without this law. But Jesus says it was not supposed to be this way. It wasn't like this at the beginning when God created the concept of marriage. Um, it's an interesting, I don't know, an, an idea, a biblical concept here. Jesus is essentially saying that this law shouldn't have to exist. It's wrong that Moses had to give you this law. There shouldn't have to be laws about how to break something that isn't supposed to be broken. Another Bible scholar, Michael Wilkins, says, Jesus emphasizes that divorce should never be understood to be a morally neutral option. It always evidences the presence of sin or the hardness of heart. Then Jesus answers the question a little more directly in verse nine. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. 
This verse right here is called the exception clause. So some people read what Jesus has said up to this point as meaning no divorce is ever okay. It is never, it is never right. But then he gives the exception here in verse nine. Jesus has basically said when God brings people together, humans are not supposed to tear that, up, tear that apart. The one flesh that God creates, symbolized and consummated by sexual union, is actually broken when one of the people in the marriage experiences sexual union outside of this covenant. It actually breaks the covenant. And Jesus says that this is an acceptable reason to do what normally shouldn't be done. It does not mean that divorce is good or right. It's an exception to the rule, which is that it shouldn't be broken. It is a concession to the hard hearts of humans. The logic is like this in my mind. When God joins a man and a woman together, they are one. Sexual union, the symbolic, repeated, consummating act of the oneness. If a husband or a wife chooses to have that same type of sexual oneness outside of their covenant of marriage, they break the covenant. It's broken. The oneness has been broken. So if a husband or wife decides to divorce their spouse without the covenant being broken by unfaithfulness, aka for any and every reason like the Pharisees refer to, I think what's implied is that the covenant was still valid and was not broken. And therefore, when they marry another or with another person and they symbolically consummate their new oneness through sex, it actually breaks the original oneness from their first marriage. I think that's what Jesus is saying, which leads me to a point, which is that I think there is a very significant separation between legal slash cultural marriage, what it means to our society, and the God-ordained covenant of marriage. I think those are actually separate things, meaning you could be legally divorced according to the county that you live in, but possibly in God's eyes still have like an active binding marriage covenant when God joined you two together. Jesus says that if the God-ordained marriage covenant wasn't broken by unfaithfulness, but the husband divorces the wife anyways, when he remarries someone and presumably they experience the sexual oneness, then the God-ordained marriage covenant is actually broken and adultery has happened. You guys doing good so far? Okay. I'm gonna come back to that topic in a little bit. Verse 10. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, this meaning you can't get divorced. It's not supposed to be broken. And the only reason that you should is if one of the, uh, the husband or wife is uh, unfaithful. They say, if that's the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. If it is intended, in, in fact, intended to be for as long as you both shall live, then they're like, I don't know that this is like good for us to step into this. It's kind of, they're feeling the weight of the commitment after hearing Jesus talk about this. And Jesus says, essentially, you're not wrong. Verse 11, Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. First thing, I've never said the word eunuch so many times in my life. I hope I don't have to again. Two, I want to, I have to summarize this passage, um, but there could be a whole series on stuff 
good stuff that's in here. Um, the disciples make the remark that given the strict standards of God's covenant of marriage, it could, be, it could be better for someone not to marry. And Jesus kind of hops on that train and he's really talking about singleness and celibacy as equally valid options alongside marriage for the kingdom of God. The word eunuch is used, I think, for some shock value, like it works on us, and it also would have had shock value for people in Jesus's day. Um, the idea is that sexuality, including marriage, especially marriage, is actually, in some cases, a barrier to following Jesus. It can make things difficult for you. Some people, Jesus says, are born or made or choose to live celibate lives, lives where they can't or won't marry or have children. And he says that this way of thinking and this way of living is actually given to some and not to others. Almost like a gift. I don't like that we call celibacy a gift. Bible doesn't actually talk about it that way. Um, but it is a call to intentional celibacy. And it's intentional celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, that God has like plans for you and his kingdom um, that require you to be unattached. It doesn't mean that you are weak if you got married or wrong if you want to get married. It is simply Jesus offering celibacy and singleness as a legitimate life for someone in God's kingdom. Marriage isn't the only option, even if it seems that way sometimes. And the church could probably do a better job being champions of kingdom-minded singleness and celibacy. Again, we can, should, and maybe someday we'll do a whole other message or series on that topic another time. But I want to spend the rest of our time talking about marriage and divorce, as that's what we have been studying through here in this passage. I have three thoughts that have been stirring up in my mind over the last week. Um, doctrine versus dialogue, covenant versus contract, and Jesus versus Paul. And before you say anything, Yes, I tried for way too long to figure out an alliteration for the last one, and it wasn't happening. I thought about some like, it's like, are there Greek words that would work or like the cities in which they said the verses? Uh, the only one that kind of worked was Savior versus Saul, but it felt a little contrived and cheesy. Also, Paul doesn't go by Saul anymore. He left that life behind. We should let him. Doctrine versus dialogue. We do not have on our website a listed doctrinal position on gender, marriage, and sexuality. This is because I would prefer to have conversations or dialogue with people that might disagree with me. Sometimes I think that doctrinal statements on a website, while well-intentioned, they provide helpful clarity sometimes. I think they also stop people before they would ever get to the door of a church. I'm not saying I'll never put a doctrinal statement on our website about this. I'm not saying that I'm ashamed of my understanding of gender, marriage, and sexuality, but these issues require relationship and trust and humility. Also, I don't know about you, but I find um, issues of sexual sin are like the absolute hardest to work through in my life. I am a broken man in need of the grace of Jesus literally every day. And if someone is on their way but not yet arrived at faith in Jesus, they're interested they're on their way in that faith journey, or maybe they have arrived and they, they say Jesus is Lord, but it's early on in their faith journey. I don't know that we should expect our doctrinal statement to immediately take effect as capital T truth in their life, let alone change their impulses and behavior and psychology and physiology. 
That said, I'd like to have conversations and dialogue with people who might be coming to Jesus, even when they might disagree with me. I hope that you might want that too, and I hope our church could be a place where that happens. With that being said, here's a doctrinal statement from another church, and I agree with every word, so I'm going to read it. We believe that God wonderfully and immutably creates each person as male or female. These two distinct complementary genders together reflect the image and nature of God. Rejection of one's biological sex is a rejection of the image of God within that person. We believe that the term marriage has only one meaning, the uniting of one natural-born cisgender man and one natural-born cisgender woman in a single exclusive union as delineated in scripture. We believe that God intends sexual intimacy to occur only between a natural-born cisgender man and a natural-born cisgender woman who are married to each other. We believe that God has commanded that no intimate sexual activity be engaged outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. We believe that any form of sexual immorality, including adultery, fornication, homosexual behavior, bisexual conduct, bestiality, incest, and use of pornography is sinful and offensive to God. I agree with everything in that paragraph. If you don't, that's okay. I said this at the very beginning. If you don't, it is okay. We can not just like be friends, but we can worship together. We could have conversations about that um, if you want to. The only thing that I care to nuance is that the church needs to be really careful not to prop up unbiblical or extra biblical stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. There is a big difference between rejecting your biological sex and just not being stereotypically feminine or masculine to how your family or culture defines it. The church needs to be careful to like separate those two things. Um, in short, I'm not afraid of doctrinal statements. I am afraid that our church will never have the opportunity to see same-sex attracted or trans people come to know Jesus and watch their life transform before our eyes. So we have to do doctrine and be willing to do dialogue, especially with people who disagree with us. Fair enough? Covenant versus contract. These are, they feel like th thoughts and opinions to me. I think that they are based in scripture, but I'll just, my disclaimer is gonna be, these are just my thoughts on marriage. Um, and if you disagree, we could talk about it and I'll point out some scriptures that I think have influenced it. I sort of talked about them earlier. Um, marriage as our culture understands it is no longer the marriage that God created. There is a huge difference between the covenant of marriage that God ordained in Genesis 1 and 2 and the courthouse contract that we sign at a party today. They are not the same thing. The document you sign for the county tells them that you've agreed to tether your lives together until you no longer want to be tethered together. And then you just have to sign some more papers to undo it. The covenant that two people make before God and I think very specifically their church Christian community, the people they follow Jesus with, that is not a thing that is signed on paper and filed with the government. It is a sacred promise between two people and God that they are committed to one another for life. It involves a covenant ceremony between two people before God and again, their Christian community and I think their pastor. 
the person who shepherds that community of Jesus followers. This covenant does not have a legal paper to sign, but we do know what it looks like. It's when a man leaves his family and a woman leaves her family and they join together, become a new family unit. They consummate this union with sexual union, that repeated symbolic act that symbolizes the union that God has created. And it sometimes produces children and it's a beautiful thing. This is what the people of God do. And it is what it truly means to be actually married. The problem is that today, our weddings and our marriages are somehow this weird mixture of both of those things. They involve signing the legal document for the county. Uh, they also, Christian or not, carry the vibe and like the, some of the symbolism of the God-ordained ceremony. Like we still kind of carry that in weddings that aren't even for um, people that are following Jesus. Like for today, a wedding, two people that don't follow Jesus, don't care, don't love, about, don't love God, it requires still that they have a minister to ordain their marriage. Like, why does that happen? It's very strange to me. It's a, it's a show. I don't mean to say that non-Christians who get married are trying to put on a show, but I think it's a holdout from a long dead era in our world where marriage meant something different. Add on top of this, the culture war that has been happening over the last few decades on the definition of marriage, who can and can't be married to each other in this country, the politics, the propositions, and the fighting. All of this to say, my opinion, and you are free to disagree with me, I think the church would do well to let go and to let culture do what it will, what it is doing with the word marriage. It has already happened. We can't stop it. <laughs> marriage, as our world understands it, is no longer the marriage covenant that God created. I think it would be better if the church mentally separated sectioned off of what our culture decides or doesn't decide to do with marriage and we do our own thing. A covenant ceremony where two people join together for life and promise before God and their Christian community that this is more than a contract that we file with the county. This is a lifelong covenant to be one, to be faithful to each other and to love one another like Jesus does. I don't know what that looks like. Um, I just know the church could probably afford to stop fighting a culture war about the definition of marriage and do a better job fighting for the health and the prosperity of the covenants that have already been made within the family of God. Gotta move on to the last thing. Jesus versus Paul, or Savior versus Saul, if it needs to be rhymy. This concept of uh, when divorce is permitted is strange because Jesus and Paul do not say the same thing about this. They don't say opposite things, they just say different things. Normally, I would place a lot of weight, more weight on clear words of Jesus, but we also have some very clear words of Paul to take into consideration on this topic. In our passage, Jesus has said, divorce is permissible when a partner has been unfaithful. When they have broken the sexual oneness, it breaks the covenant. But Paul provides another scenario where divorce is permissible. So the passage is in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm not gonna read through it, but he's talking to this group of Christians, many of whom are new Christians. And he's telling these people, to, the idea is to remain as you were when the Lord found you. So it talks about people that were slaves and tells them like, hey, if that's how you met Jesus, you don't have to, 
uh, try to become not a slave. You can stay as you were. And then he talks about people that are married, people that were not Jesus followers when they got married, and then one of them became a Jesus follower. So they, we have these kind of mixed marriages that Paul is speaking to. And he tells the church, he tells Corinth, if you are married to an unbeliever and your spouse who is an unbeliever wants to leave, you can let them. He doesn't tell them that you have to divorce your spouse. He's saying it's actually better if you stay together with your spouse who's not a Jesus follower because they might meet Jesus through your relationship. But he does say, if the unbeliever leaves, I think I do have this reference up. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. The leaving is referring to divorce in this scenario. God has called us to live in peace. This is what Bible scholars call the desertion clause. Paul says if your unbelieving spouse leaves, and that word leave can be translated a few different ways. The idea is that they leave. They abandon the marriage. They desert. He says you can live at peace and let this spouse leave. In the same way, um, when Jesus uh, tells us that sexual immorality breaks the covenant, I think Paul is saying that when an unbelieving spouse leaves, deserts the marriage, that also breaks the covenant. Most Bible scholars and pastors, I think, agree that this concept of an unbelieving partner leaving or deserting has a somewhat flexible range of meaning, not just physically leaving the house. Uh, unfortunately, I think a spouse can desert, can leave without divorcing. A marriage covenant can be broken while people still live in the same house. So I think we're delving into opinion and conjecture, and there's probably a, a wide range of understanding of where this verse in 1 Corinthians does and doesn't apply. Um, but I do think that physical and emotional abuse are versions of desertion. They are evidence that a spouse has abandoned the way of Jesus and has neglected their spouse and has broken their marriage covenant. Which leads me to this final sad point, which is that divorce is never what God wants, but it sometimes is necessary and maybe even sometimes unavoidable. Sometimes it's the only option to keep your family safe. Sometimes it's not your decision and your spouse decides to divorce when you don't want to. Unfortunately, these covenants that we make before God, though they are beautiful and rich, they can be broken. And while God does not want them to end, as Jesus has told us, sometimes they do. If you have been divorced, I'm really, truly sorry for the pain that you have had to endure. It is brutal. I unfortunately have seen it up close more times than I wish I, I had. And I just want you to know that whatever your story is, even if it doesn't fit the mold of what Jesus or Paul have said, or you're not sure, I want you to know that you are welcome and you are accepted here and your church family loves you and supports you. If you are still married but are struggling, I felt compelled to say irreconcilable differences, falling out of love, wanting a change are not acceptable reasons for divorce. 
These are things that need the love and the grace of Jesus to permeate your heart and your spouse's heart so that you can love one another and recommit to one another. The last thing that I want to say um, is just that I have a, I suppose I'd call it a, a pastoral fear. Um, I worry um, that some of you that are married would have significant problems in your marriage and would not say anything about it or would kind of only loosely hint at it here and there. Um, it's happened a handful of times in my life where I just didn't know how bad things had got in someone's life and in their marriage. And then by the time I found out about it, it was far too late and it was over. The covenant was broken and then they were divorced. Um, and, oh, it just makes me sad to think about the pain and struggle that you might be going through and feel like you can't talk about it. And so my hope is that uh, that marriage being hard that divorce being an option would not be like a taboo subject to us, but that we would acknowledge like this is happening everywhere around us. The church is not immune to this and I can talk about this uh, with my community or with my pastor if, if I need to. Um, and so if that's you, I, I know it would be uncomfortable for you in some ways, but would you please um, come talk to me or call me or email me and we can get together because um, I firmly believe that God can do literal miracles in your marriage, whether or not you think that it can happen, whether or not it feels to you like it's just over and done. Um, I've seen that happen too. And so, um, yeah, let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for um, your words here in the scriptures and your reminder about what marriage is and why um, divorce is just so brutal because it is tearing apart something that you have joined together. And so I pray that this church would be a compassionate church for those who are struggling in their marriage, those who struggled and failed and are divorced those who are left in the wake of that damage, would you help us to be a church that is aware of that kind of pain and that um, speaks to it and brings comfort, brings healing, and brings life? God, I pray for the married couples in this room. I ask Jesus specifically that you would fix our eyes on you that our life would not be about trying to be happy and marriage being just a tool towards that, but that our lives would be about becoming like Jesus and serving you and serving those around us. God, I believe that would radically transform our marriages in this church. I pray in this moment that you would help um, any families, any couples in our church who just who need to talk about their marriage, about how things are going. I pray that you would disarm whatever person in the marriage feels defensive and doesn't want to talk about it. Would you bring humility? And God, I pray as we sing to you 
that you would allow us to, um, no matter where we're coming into this evening, whether this topic has just put a burden and a weight on us or not, I just ask that you would help us um, engage with your spirit while we sing, that we would acknowledge your presence with us, that no matter how this week has gone, how busy we were, or if we have strayed from you into sin, that you would call us back as your children, not as guilty ones who are in trouble, but loved and forgiven ones who want to be in the presence of our Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.